The Quiet Carriage, the community radio network show all about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. I'm here on Jar Jar Wurrung Country on Castlemaine's 94.9 Main FM and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We have a terrific episode today for you featuring Anthony Hill. His new book is called The Last Convict. He appeared recently here in Castlemaine at the Tap Room at the Northern Books Run event, Books at the Brewery. And I'm going to replay that interview that he did right here today. First, a little bit about the novel, The Last Convict. Oxford, 1863. Young Samuel Speed sets a barley stack alight in the hope it will land him a bed in prison for the night. He wants nothing more than a morsel of food in his belly and a warm place to sleep off the streets. What he receives is a sentence of seven years' servitude to be served half a word away in the penal colony of Fremantle, Western Australia. When Samuel boards the transport ship Belgravia, He is stripped of his clothing and even his name, and given regulations of when to rise, eat, clean and sleep. On arrival at Fremantle Prison, hard labour is added to the mix, and he wonders if life can get any worse. The only solace he finds is a love of reading, which allows the likes of Tom Sawyer and Oliver Twist to become his lifelong friends. Samuel is granted a ticket of leave in 1867 and full freedom in 1871. But what sort of life can a man forge for himself in the colony with no skills, no money, and no family? Will it be the beginning of the life he has always dreamed of? Or do some sentences truly never end? A colourful recreation of the life and times of the last known convict to be sent to Australia, The Last Convict is a moving study of old age and loneliness as one social outcast finds meaning in his impoverished life through the power of literature meticulously researched and brilliantly woven into an engaging fictional account. It is an unforgettable story by an award-winning writer and historian. And now I want to read you a little bit about the author, Anthony Hill. He is a multi-award-winning best-selling author. His most recent book for adults, The Story of Billy Young, was published in 2012. His novel Soldier Boy, about Australia's youngest known Anzac, was winner of the 2002 New South Wales Primary Literary Award for Books for Young Adults. His most recent children's book, Captain's Cook Apprentice, won the 2009 New South Wales Young People's History Prize. And he also has numerous other credits to his name, and Anthony lives in Canberra with his wife Gillian. And now we will hear Anthony Hill in discussion at Books of the Brewery, brought to you by Northern Books. I wanted to really start by asking you, why? Why do you write historical fiction? Is that, it's obviously a passion of yours, Tony. Where does it come from? Oh, for me, from childhood. I've always been interested in in the past, in reading history. At one stage, I thought I was going to become an historian uh, at university. And then I realised I wanted to really write and become a journalist and write about a wider wider uh, section of society and from there uh, ultimately I knew that I wanted to start writing novels. At the age of about 10 I think I read Seven Little Australians and and you know the the, the best character is Judy and at the end Judy gets killed when a branch falls on her 
And I cried and cried and I said to my mother, why did this have to happen? And part of me knew that I was crying over something that didn't happen to a fictional character. But the tears were real enough. And it did touch a very deep part of my inner emotions, my inner life. And I just knew that one day I'd try to write those sorts of books myself. And, uh, and through my career path, which is more of a goat track, I started, you know, writing initially uh, for children, but then they broadened in later years into, into adult novels. There comes a point when you write adult, young adult fiction that, that it becomes a bit restrictive. You want to talk about life and all its aspects. Mm-hmm. And so with, with, with uh, The Last Convict, old Sam Speed, I knew as soon as I began writing it and seeing him waking up on that morning of his interview with a newspaper reporter, I wanted to see him naked so that I could begin to clothe this old man in his 90s with, 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 with his story and with, with, with fiction and, his, and, and the, all the detritus of his life. That's what yeah. I wanted to do about it. And he became very close, of course, as they all do. Mm. When did you first hear about Samuel Speed? What was the trigger for the story? I, I came across the story in '04. I think in a newspaper or a magazine article. And um, I uh, was at the time living in Canberra and I'm a reader at the National Library of Australia. And it wasn't too difficult using the resources there, the reference books, to sort of get together very quickly the the essential details, at least of his his career as a a convict. arrested and sentenced uh, at uh, Oxford in 1863 for setting fire to a barley stack because he and a mate were starving. Mm. And uh, they wanted to go to prison to get regular meals. Um, it was a terrible tragedy. It was quite common. I thought, well, maybe he was a, you know, this was a, you know, a, an act of political rebellion. You know, he was one of the uh, Luddites, but he wasn't. He was just a, a poor man, an agricultural labourer who, and had nothing to eat for days and days. And the only place that the workhouse wouldn't have them was to go to prison. And to that extent, it was successful. It ended up with seven years of meals provided by the Queen. Yeah, and a bed. Uh, and a bed, uh, hard well, bed and hard board, but... wasn't quite as romantic as I think they thought it was. Uh, oh, no, it was very different. The judge even said, I hope that you'll find it a lot less pleasant than you seem to think it's going to be. Mm. And mm. that remained true. But that beginning of the story, and we should um, perhaps set the story up without giving away too much. I mean, obviously, it's a known story in some regards. But Tony, you you tell um, Samuel Speed tells his story um, at the age of ninety something to a, um, a Western Australian journalist called Joshua Cribben, who uh, and so this idea of the narrative and the perspective comes and goes as as Samuel tells the various stories of his journey to the to the journalist. It's a very clever way of telling this story. Well, it's partly telling it to the journalist and mostly not telling it to the journalist. Mm. Uh, the journalist thinking that he's, that he's just getting old and forgetful. Well, how can you forget? He's mm. just internalising it. He's become adept at burying his secrets deep. Um, the, the trigger for this part of it, I, I found this story in 04. Easy enough for us to find the essential facts. He arriving in 1866, ticket of leave in 67, freedom in 71. 
that was easy enough, but getting close to the man was the most difficult thing. You still really don't know of the many Samuel Speeds born in the 1840s in England, which one was actually him. Mm. But uh, it was not until um, January of 18 that I had uh, sent off the manuscript for the new edition of Cook that you've got behind me. And I said to my wife, uh, I'm really going to do the, the convict now. I'm really going to do it. And I pulled out all the files and I rang the researchers who had been so helpful to me in Perth, really wonderful women. And um, the very next day, Jill said to me, have you seen the ABC? And there on the website was an article about Samuel Speed. And some British academics had found um, an interview he had given with the Perth Mirror newspaper only a few months before he died. And suddenly, you know, I had some flesh to put on these bones that we'd unearthed, but really had not been able to sort of cover with any kind of humanity. And uh, from then, it, it just, oh, within a fortnight, I'd started writing. You know, all those ideas that had been gathering for, what, 14 or 15 years just suddenly began to take shape on the page. And I knew that we had, and I, I just thought it would be a good idea to to build the whole novel structure around this interview. Mm. And in fact, in literary terms, it all takes place within an hour or two. Yeah. And there's one morning when he's given this interview uh, to the newspaper reporter, mm. which he doesn't really want to do. I mean, that time, convictism was still a terrible state. It was something awful to have to admit to. He's so hence his, hence his equivocation and prevarication and long external silences. Mm. Well, he 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 kind of um, he he, worked, he owns the interview, doesn't he? He he he's completely in control. The orderly knows that. Sam knows that. Uh, and he's. Well, I'm really glad. I'm glad. I'm very glad you picked that up. It was really quite critical for me to establish that he he the newspaper report said that he gave his interview from the bed from his bed. Mm. Now you know, here he is in his habitat. I. As an imaginary device, but I had him, you know, thinking, you know, I don't want to you know, be cross-examined like Paul Galileo and convict myself out of my own mouth. Uh, so he says, he decides that he's feeling sick and he has to go to bed and, and be propped up and be interviewed in the bedside chair where he is happy to see that he's a good head higher than the person interviewing him. And it's all these little tricks and, uh, that he does, but he's trying to sort of even the balance a bit in the in the power relationship between him and the fellow he's interviewing. I should add, by the way, that Joshua Cribben is entirely imagined. Right. The journalist uh, is not. There's no byline to the article, so I didn't know who it is. And oh, right. I, we couldn't be able to find any of the news actual newspaper files. No, we couldn't find them anywhere. Uh, so he's, he's quite an imagined character, although I have to say he contains a great many fragments of myself from my journalistic years. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on Castle Main's 94.9 Main FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now we'll return to Anthony Hill and his appearance here in Castlemaine at Books at the Brewery, promoting his new book, The Last Convict, out now via Penguin. Yeah, I mean, he's a good character, and, and you sense that there's a... Um, uh, it, it's a job, and uh, but he's, it, he's, 
he, he kind of um, grows to like Samuel very much in that hour, you know, and, and, uh, and I suppose even though we know and we're hearing stories in Samuel's head that he's not telling Joshua Cribben, um, that Joshua comes to, to really enjoy the interview and the, and the little, you know, sense of humour that Samuel has in the end. And it is an incredible story and that's part of you, as you have put it, dressing Samuel up for us um, and giving him a personality and a character. And there's so many great stories within the story that I'm curious to know. I mean, you said you first came across this story. Was it 2004? You yeah. said, yeah. I mean, um, it, there's a lot to gather. There's a lot of facts, a lot of research, I imagine, incredible amount of research. Did yeah. you go to WA? Did you go to Perth? Yes, we did. Um, we, in uh, the middle, in June of 18, we went across. You've got to see the landscapes mm. if you can because uh, there are all these metaphors you can draw out of it. And uh, we went to Perth, um, uh, looked, you know, went to the old men's home. It still exists. It's um, now vacant, although it's an arts. It's going to become an arts precinct. Mm. So it's, it's the dining hall is much as it was. It has hardly changed. And nor of the dormitories, really. They're much very similar. Uh, we went down to uh, Bunbury and to Bustleton and I saw the prison there and the buildings there and particularly we went to this little place called Quindalup. It's just a mere dot on the map south of, uh, south of Bustleton and uh, by sheer fluke, it was just sheer serendipity, we went into a, into a house on the side of the road. There's nothing there much no, uh, to see if we could find anything about the convict settlement was there. And lo and behold, there was a whole little village, of, uh, the, the, the harbour master's house, Harwood's, uh, that Sam would have known, it was there. He worked when he got his ticket of leave at a timber mill manned by a man called Henry Yelverton. The, the store was there, the police lockup was there, the post office was there. Yeah. And I uh, met a man, Rob Bennett, who sadly now deceased, uh, was a fellow journalist with myself. He was had the place with his partner. And uh, Rob in two, Rob, I met uh, a descendant of him, Henry Elvin. I spoke to him on the phone, he didn't actually meet, but we spoke to him and he's been very helpful to me uh, about this. So you know, visiting the places, they tend to come to life. Mm. Going to Perth uh, also and going to the prison, the two um, curators at the Fremantle prison, which is as it was, I mean, it was a prison until recently, uh, were enormously helpful in providing me prison records and irregulations and all of these sorts of things that you need to calculate how small amounts of money they ended up as gratuity, all these sorts of things. But it also brought home to me that I'd had to, I had to go back and revise what I'd already written. I'd written halfway through up to the point where uh, they've arrived at Fremantle. And in my story, my reading of it, uh, I have old Samuel Speed becoming a reader. Mm. Uh, uh, he never married, he said that. Uh, and he, what triggered this idea? And in my imagination, the characters in the books he reads uh, become his close friends. You know, he was he's a loner. He was in, spent most of his adult life in an institution of one kind or another. Um, and that, that was triggered by the uh, the interview he gave 
things are important not for what they say necessarily, but what they don't say. In it, he made passing reference to a short story by Mark Twain. It's, from, it's called the, the Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg. And I thought, if he's read Mark Twain, he's probably read Charles Dickens mm -hmm. and perhaps George Eliot and the Bontes maybe and sort of all the, the great novelists of the, of the 19th century. You read Twain, you're reading classical literature. You know, it's not the trash. Mm -hmm. And that developed in me this idea that he'd become a reader. But when I got to Perth, I realised I... Our mutual friend, Jane Tanner, had read the manuscript, a dear friend, and Jane had read it and she pointed out that there was a problem that on the convict ship coming over to Fremantle, I had Sam beginning to read the Pickwick papers. But I hadn't really shown how a semi-literate um, uh, labour convict could get to the point where he could read Charles Dickens. So I had to go back and research more of the English prison system. And I was quite astonished to find that for all the horrors of the punishments and the degradation and the hard labour, they did at least provide the opportunity for a basic education to teach prisoners to read and to write. And I had to show they had schoolmasters and they, for those that were in, in, in um, separate confinement, like Samuel was in the first part, the schoolmasters could come to their cells. There's lots of literature on the subject. And through that, I was able to sort of enrich the book and, and, and build up the character. I, the, the, um, the assumption, too, is supported by the fact that the records show that Speed had uh, an association with the Society for the Blind, the Braille Society, rather, in Western Australia, going back to at least 1924. Right. And uh, it was a Braille society that actually arranged his funeral. So it all supports the idea that he yeah. did read it, I think. It, um, I wanted to, I'm glad you brought up about the books because um, they are a source of uh, friendship, as you say, they're a source of solace, they're a, a peek into the outside world. And I just, do you mind if I just read something quickly sure, from, yeah. from the book, actually, Tony? Um, it's, um, it's about. Uh, his love of the books um, and, his, and Joshua Cribben asks him, what sort of books do you like to read, Sam? Oh, whatever was going. Adventure stories, but there are generally, there generally weren't much in the way to remember. Kipling, of course. Some of those crime stories when they started to come out, Sherlock Holmes, Mrs Christie, Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. Do you know it? Mark Twain. But Dickens is the one that stays with me. Mr Pickwick, Copperfield, Oliver Twist. They've been old friends for years. Everything turned out all right for them at last. Pip, especially from his convict inheritance and great expectations, wonderful stories, happy endings. Samuel stopped a moment wondering and drew a lungful of cold air. I wish life was really like that, Mr Gribben, don't you? Yes, Sam, if only it were. And that's why we all read books, isn't it? You know, we, we want a happy ending. We want to, to see another way of life. We want to take a peek. And for, for um, Sam Speed, it was such a sense of uh, hope and, uh, you know, as we said, friendship. So I'm yeah. glad you talked. Acceptance too. You see, and, yeah. and, in my, and in my imagining of him, um, I have him, I mean, as a convict, absolutely rejecting God and the Bible and everything. Hmm. But, you know, he's a clever, sly young man and he, was, in order to get into 
the prison library, he had to demonstrate to the clergyman, the chaplain, that he could actually read the New Testament. Yeah. And so although he mentally rejects everything he's reading about, you know, God shall break thy chains asunder, he doesn't have to believe it and he has to say it. Mm. And uh, But in the Mastur, um, he's influenced, I think, very, I have no basis for this except that I, I know that this man was on the ship and he was the, the, the schoolmaster and the religious instructor, a man called Irwin and William Irwin, and he produced a weekly journal uh, which is, is for the, was read to the convicts on board the Belgravia convict ship. And, you know, it showed a very literate flair. He saw constant literary allusions and references in his writings. And he's obviously a very compassionate man um, and understands he was, in fact, the schoolmaster at the uh, uh, prison, uh, Millbank Prison in London. And he made six voyages on the convict ships uh, to, um, you know, to instruct the convicts to help prepare them spiritually and usefully for the life they were living. And uh, he, Xira Singh in his journal, he identifies himself very closely with the convicts. Mm. He talks about us and we and our class. And it's, it's quite extraordinary to find someone in that sort of authority at that time uh, so closely identifying himself with, with, the, with these men who are only used to authority figures that just order them about and punish them, you know. And in my eyes, I, I think it was uh, in Irwin that helped set Sam on the path to reading these broader novels. Um, he talks about Pickwick, he talks about Dickens in the Belgravian Journal, and that is by, it's an assumption, but it's what led me as a novelist. It is more, the emphasis in this is more on the novel than the history, you know, I have to say. One's reconstructing Sam from very, you know, very meagre bits and pieces. Fun, though. Fun to reconstruct someone, Tony. Oh, well. In, your, in the way you would like him to be. Well, you know, I mean, you've got to read into the lines. And in one point in the interview, he was asked, was he, did, did you ever get married, Sam? No, I didn't have to. Not the way all the girls were chasing me the way they used to. <laughs> well, no, they weren't. Not in Perth they weren't in the 1870s and 80s. There were three to four times more men than there were women. Yeah. And any available girl wasn't going to be ch chasing a, a one-eyed sort of uh, jobbing gardener who was an ex-convict. <laughs> it was all fantasy, but... Yeah. He doesn't find love, but he's much loved, isn't he? He's people respect him, and you know when, nice when he, you know, become when he's free, gets his freedom. I, I do want to come he back. Kept himself out of trouble. There's no evidence that he was ever uh, in, in trouble before with the authorities again. I think I think that the experience of the convict system just so traumatized him, so scarred him that yeah. he wanted. He, you know, he kept himself clear of the other men, so yeah. he might, wouldn't be drawn into any kind of conspiracy. And even in later life, I mean, always afraid that he might pick up with someone else to, you know, yeah. clever, you know, smooth talk, he'll get him into trouble again, you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Tommy because, yeah. you know, uh, there are some great characters in this book and, um, you know, great stories within the story too that the... Um, the Moondine Joe story, the John Boyle O'Reilly story. There's, but I thought there was a good opportunity to tell for this generation these stories of West Australian convictism. Mm. You know, the escape on the Catalpa and 
Moonline Joe, as you mentioned, that a part of our culture deep down and tell them for a new generation. That was Long Arm with A Perfect Morning. And before that, we heard Anthony Hill, who appeared in Castlemaine recently here at the Tap Room as part of Northern Books' Books at the Brewery. And thank you to all involved for allowing us to play that and bring that to you today. And that's all we have time for today on The Quiet Carriage. I've been your host, Paul J. Laverty. I'm across all the socials under that name, and you can listen to me Fridays from 1pm on Castle Maine's 94.9 Main FM and mainfm.net, and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And remember, all previous episodes are available on Spotify. Until next time, keep reading. <laughs>